immediately following this service downstairs. And so I um, hope you'll join us for that and plan to be here. But this morning, um, we're kicking off a new series in the book of Philippians. And so the plan is, Lord willing, that we'll be in the book of Philippians for the next eight weeks, uh, starting this morning and going all the way up through uh, the Sunday before Christmas. And uh, this is um, a fun book. I love the book of Philippians. Um, it's one of Paul's more personal letters that he wrote. And um, it's a short book, but it packs a very powerful punch. Some of the more famous verses in all the New Testament are found in the book of Philippians, right? A lot of coffee cup verses um, in Philippians that you see on uh, various things. And one of the things that you'll notice if you've never read Philippians, I want to encourage you um, over the next eight weeks to read Philippians with us. And so you can kind of read a chapter at a time. You can sit and read the whole book in about 20, 25 minutes, even reading at a just a moderate pace. Um, and it's a very short book, four chapters. And so I want to encourage you to read it with us over the next few weeks. You can read it uh, over and over again every week, or read is, is this the sections that we're going to be preaching through and teaching through in here? Um, but it's a great book, and it's a book um, that just emanates with joy. Um, the the word or the Greek word for joy um, in its noun or verb form is fourteen times uh, used fourteen times in the book of Philippians. Um, that's a little over three times a chapter. I mean, it's more than any other of Paul's writings. And uh, it's an interesting book because it, it just has one of its major themes is the joy that Paul has and the joy he's calling Philippians to. And we'll see in just a moment um, why that is so interesting in this book. But it's also a book that talks about Jesus a lot. Uh, the name of Jesus and various titles of Jesus um, are are just throughout this book. I mean, it's like it just drips uh, with Paul's love for Jesus and his passion for serving Jesus. And it's also a book uh, that more than any other New Testament book talks about the idea of the Christian mind. Uh, you see terms for mind and for thinking uh, in the book of Philippians uh, more than any other New Testament book. And so when you kind of see all this as a whole, it's a book, it's really written as an encouragement. It's a thank you letter for a gift uh, that the Philippians had sent to Paul. But it's a, it's a letter that he's writing to thank them, but it's a letter of encouragement um, to all believers, and particularly at Philippi, for them to live joyful, Christ-centered lives grounded in thinking that has been transformed by the gospel. All right, and that's kind of wordy, but that, that, that's kind of my summary of it. It's a book full of joy that is encouraging us to live these Christ-centered lives of joy. And uh, you see that laced throughout this book. People both in and out of church today um, largely struggle with a lack of joy. Uh, we are a, uh, a culture um, that where depression and anger and things like that just really um, run deep. Um, people wrestle with these things. And we see these things um, in the church. We see them outside of the church with people you work with. And we see also, not only that, but people who literally are crumbling under unfortunate circumstances. Because um, life's hard and tragic things happen in life. And only Christianity, we believe, has the answers and provides the strength through Christ for victorious, joyful Christian living in all circumstances. And that's one of the big takeaways from Philippians. Is that you can live a joyful, victorious Christian life no matter your circumstances. And we're going to see that um, starting this morning. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. We're going to kind of look at chapter 1 over this week and next week. And this morning in the, in the intro here with the first 11 verses... And we're going to see that in this first chapter, Paul is bubbling over with joy right from the beginning as he thinks about these fellow believers in Philippi that he is separated from. And it's weird that he's, he's bubbling over with joy because he's at a time in his life where he could be very lonely, very isolated, and yet he has great joy. And one of the reasons for that joy is 
this particular relationship with this particular church. Because relationships and Christ-centered relationships, gospel-rich relationships with other believers are foundational for Christian joy. Um, you, you can't have genuine Christian joy watered and growing in your life if you don't have these kind of rich relationships. And Paul's in a situation where he's separated from these people and yet the relationship that he has with them goes far beyond distance and is able to still bring him joy in his life. So look with me at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi and with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you, are, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Right? It is a book that overflows with joy. And it starts right there in the first few verses. He lets them know as he thinks about them and he prays for them. He makes his prayer with joy. And so, like I said, this is a thank you letter. Um, Paul had had gotten support. He generally wouldn't even really take support, um, but he took support from the Philippians. And, and we, we read over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when Paul does his great writing on generosity in the church and what that looks, looks like in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He talks about the churches in Macedonia who were just so generous in their giving to his ministry that they, and their giving to help people that they gave out of their poverty. And well, Philippi was in Macedonia. That was one of those churches, okay? And so when he, Paul says that, the Philippians, are one of the groups of people he's talking about. And so here he's writing them and he's thanking them for a gift that they've given. And they had actually even sent one of their one of their believers, one of their leaders in their church to him to minister to him, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. He will come up here in a few weeks over in chapter uh, in, in, over in um, chapter uh, two, I believe it is. And so he's actually Epaphroditus gets sick, likely on the journey to Paul, and has to be sent back. And risked his life on this journey. Uh, it was a long journey. Most people believe uh, that when Paul writes this, uh, that he was in a Roman prison cell. Okay, you know, probably under, um, um, under uh, maybe under house arrest. But he's he's arrested. He's he's taken in. It's in it's in his first Roman imprisonment. Um, it's not the imprisonment where he dies. He does get out of prison, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know um, that he's not that he's going to survive. For all he knows, he's going to be executed. For all he knows, he's never going to be released. So he doesn't know. And so that's what makes this book so interesting. Is that here's a guy that sits in dire circumstances. It's isolated in a lot of ways. Uh, that's in prison for doing nothing wrong but preaching the gospel. And he writes a book that has one of its major themes, joy. And right out of the beginning, he talks about how joyful he is when he thinks about the Philippians. And so, look there in verse 1 and 2. It's kind of the intro there. You see Paul and Timothy. Timothy's with him as he writes this. And Timothy uh, was also, also with Paul likely when he started the church at Philippi. 
Paul, we'll see here in just a moment, was the founder of this church. And Philippi and Timothy um, had a very good relationship, it is believed, with this church. And so that's probably why he mentions Timothy here. But notice he says, servants of Christ Jesus. He doesn't address himself as an apostle. He does that many times because he wants people to understand his authority. This is the church that understood Paul's authority. Um, they're very um, understanding of that. They're actually partners with him in the ministry, we see. And so he refers to himself as a servant. And that is a theme you'll see throughout the book of Philippians, of him referring himself here as a servant, of him referring to Christ as a servant, of him calling them to humble service. And we see throughout the book, he's calling them to this humble service to Christ. And he sets himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and ultimately is Jesus up as examples to be followed in this kind of, of humble service to God. And so he writes this to the church at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And those are terms for church officers. Overseer. Um, is synonymous with pastor or elder, all synonymous terms, I believe, in the New Testament for that position, and in the office of deacons. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very typical opening greeting um, from Paul there. Now, Philippi, you can read about the beginning of that church in Acts 16. It's very interesting. And, and Paul is in Philippi in Acts 16, and they don't have a synagogue in Philippi because they don't have a very much of a Jewish presence. It's a largely Gentile city with very few uh, Jews, uh, Jewish uh, believers um, in, in that place. And, but they, they had some, and so they would apparently gather outside by a place of water, outside by a riverside to worship since there wasn't a synagogue. So the Bible tells us in Acts 16 that instead of going to a synagogue when he got to Philippi, which was Paul's normal habit when he went to a new city, he would go into the synagogue, preach the gospel, and try to lead some um, of the Jewish uh, folks there to Christ and then go out from there and begin to reach Gentiles and things of that nature and go into the marketplace and all that. Well, they didn't have a synagogue. So he goes to where he knew that people were gathering because you had to have so many people, so many adult heads of male heads of households to have a synagogue in a city. And so they didn't have that. So he goes out by Riverside where there are some women who are there um, who are worshiping. And Paul begins to preach the gospel and a very famous lady in the New Testament by the name of Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Uh, at that moment. So she is the first believer that we know of uh, that, that Paul leads to Christ in Philippi. And then one day, as Paul's walking on and he's doing ministry, uh, there's a, a couple of guys there who had um, a, a, a girl, a young girl with them, who was oppressed or possessed, whatever you want to call it, by this, by this demon. And she was harassing and kind of really, if you just read the New Testament as it says it, she was getting on Paul's nerves. Uh, to the point that finally he just turned around and just said, stop it, you know, demon be gone, whatever he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He, he delivered her of this oppression she was under, set her free uh, in the name of Jesus, and this royally ticked off the two guys um, that, 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 that this um, little um, slave girl basically um, belonged to, and because they used to make money off of her because of this demonic oppression she had. And so... Their, their way of making money has gone, so they go and they turn Paul in and get Paul arrested. And so now Paul was arrested, and he's arrested when he's in Philippi. So that's the... When Paul says, when I remember you, his earliest memories are kind of difficult, right? He's arrested, and while he, before they arrest him, they beat him, Acts 16 tells us. They beat him, and Silas was with him in, in this. It, we, he mentions him by name, uh, Luke does. And so Paul and Silas are beaten, they're arrested, they're thrown in prison, and while they're in jail, there's a Philippian jailer that's, over, that's watching over them, and one of the famous stories of Acts, Paul and Silas are singing and praising God, and they're praying, and an earthquake happens, and the locks on the doors break, the chains, right, the locks on... 
on their wrists. All this stuff falls off. And I guess from all the shaking and all the rubble, the, the Philippian jailer, he, he, he wakes up or whatever and looks around and he thinks, oh my goodness, everybody's escaped. They're going to kill me. And he's about to kill himself when Paul stops him and says, we haven't went anywhere. We're right here. I'm not running. I'm not going anywhere. And Paul begins to preach the gospel to this guy. He becomes a believer, takes him back to their house, cleans up their wounds from being beaten. And him and his family, they all become believers. And and another household comes to faith in Christ. And so those first two households that we know of by name are Lydia's household and this Philippian jailer's household. And that becomes the beginnings of this church at Philippi. Now this is about probably 10 or 12 years later when Paul writes this letter. So this church has now been in existence for over a decade when Paul writes this. It's established. It apparently has overseers. It has deacons. They're churning along now, right? And they have kept a relationship with Paul from the very beginning they've supported his ministry. And when Paul thinks about this church, he's filled with joy. And it's a big deal because he's imprisoned. Most people would be depressed. Maybe anger would be, would be what Paul would feel. You would think, you know, when Paul writes this letter, something other than joy would come out. Right? And a lot of times you'll notice, um, if you listen to much music and you listen to like entire albums, you can tell a lot, especially with singer-songwriters, about what they're feeling and what they went through by the types of music they write on that album. Right? And... Um, and so if they are going through breakups or something like that, uh, it's a very depressing or very angry album. You know, one of the two, right, I guess. And so, because what we feel when we go through it tends to come out in how we communicate. And it particularly comes out when you write uh, or, or, or in artistic form. And so here Paul is writing to this church. And a lot of things could come out when he's locked in prison for doing nothing wrong. Anger could come out. The, the fact that he's sad could come out. The, really, the fact that he's lonely could come out. But what comes out is the fact that he's full of joy. And that he's very much still living his life on mission. Why is he so joyful in this? Well, we know ultimately, if you're a Christian this morning, we know ultimately it's because of his relationship with Christ. But there are things that Christ puts in your life to enable and to strengthen your joy. And the key one this morning is his people. It's, 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 it's relationships. It's, it's the church that had ministered to Paul. One of the key components to walking with, in Christ-centered joy is the people of Christ. Believers are an incredible encouragement to each other in dark times. Or at least we should be, right? And so Jesus' people are a gift to you if you're a believer this morning in difficult times to help fuel your joy in the journey, to help enable that and strengthen that. In prison, had to be a lonely time. It had to be a darker time. But Paul has joy as he thinks about his church and he prays for them and their fellowship because their fellowship that he has with his church that he's separated from by a long distance. It was a long way from Philippi to Rome where he's likely in prison. And so there's a lot of distance separating them, but they have a connection that's deeper than that. It's rooted in the gospel. So let me highlight for you this morning Paul's joyful thanksgiving for their gospel participation. Then we're going to look at his joyful confidence in their transformation and his joyful prayer for their progress. And so all related to his relationship with them. And it helps us to learn the, the deepness and the, um, the need we have for Christian fellowship and what that actually looks like. So the first thing here is notice Paul's joyful thankfulness, his joyful thanksgiving for their gospel participation there in verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why, Paul? Why are you so thankful? Why do you pray with joy? He says, because of your partnership in the gospel. He says, I'm thankful because of you. I'm joyful because of you. And, but he, he uses this term, partnership in the gospel. 
And I think it's key to understanding what's driving this. See, the Greek word there, we see the word in, our, in your English Bible. Most translations say partner or partnership or something like that. The Greek word is, is the word koinonia. And that's a very familiar Greek word because it's translated fellowship many times. And it's where we get the idea of fellowship and community as Christians and what we share in together. It's the idea that you share something with someone else, right? So we have a fellowship meal where we share a meal with other believers. We have This is a Christian fellowship because we share in our faith in Christ together, our belief in the gospel and the fact that we are in Christ, right? And so that's the idea of fellowship. But believers, fellowship goes way beyond that. And we we fellowship over a lot of things, right? We have unity in Christ and we fellowship around the word of God and we fellowship in the promises of God and we fellowship under the banner of Jesus and we share in this community together. But it's translated partnership here because the emphasis is on the actual activity of something they did to express the fellowship. See, we can talk about fellowship and there's nothing tangible attached to it, right? We can say, well, we're a fellowship and all that means is we show up at church together. But that's not really what he's driving at here. This was a partnership. So he's saying there was a tangible aspect. He's speaking ex- uh, definitely towards their financial gift uh, that they had made to him and also towards their prayer and support for his ministry. The point is, they have expressed their fellowship in the gospel where them and Paul have agreement under the gospel. They have expressed that in a tangible way in their involvement in his ministry through prayer, support, and financially. Uh, this was a church that was invested. And Paul's thankful for their partnering with him in the gospel. The great thing about Christian relationships is that you can be connected to people in Christ even when you're separated like Paul was with them. We can pray for people, right? We can support people in various ways. And in Christ, we have something in common that crosses oceans, crosses borders, that actually you can have more in common in some ways with someone that lives in a third world country somewhere that has faith in Christ than you can a very close friend who does not know Christ. Because uh, there's an eternal bond that's there. And so we believe in this idea of partnering together because of our fellowship. We believe in partnering together for the sake of the gospel. That's ultimately what a church is. We have come together and we steward our resources and things for the, for the praise of His glory. To, to expand and to push out and to expand the kingdom by preaching the gospel and making disciples what He's called us to do. So we do that. We are partnering together in the gospel. But we don't just partner together. We partner with other folks. Um, to give you an example, uh, if you've been a member here for a long time, and um, if you're my age or older and you've been in a Baptist church for very long, you're familiar with something called the cooperative program, right? Um, that is one of the greatest mission ideas that has ever been devised, actually. And we give a certain percentage of our budget every year right off the top to the cooperative program. And that funds all kinds of ministries. It funds education ministries and seminaries. It funds uh, church planning in the United States. It funds missionaries overseas. It funds all kinds of Christian ministries of various kinds around the world. And because us and a lot of other churches, we pool our money to do more together than we could do on our own, right? And that's a tangible example of gospel partnership with other churches. We do that when we take up an offering at Christmas to go to um, world missions or we at Easter to go towards local missions or when we take up an offering for our crisis pregnancy center. We're partnering with other believers to minister to women in need in those areas. And so all these are ways that we tangibly partner together. But we also need people who are invested in us and that we're invested in and that we're rooting for, rooting for us. It's on a close relational level. Not just dollars that we give away to go to other places. 
We need gospel community where we have Jesus in common, where we have His Word in common, and, and where we sharpen one another and shape one another. And this church is supposed to be a place where we are partnered together and fellowshipping together around the gospel. Because the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. That's why Paul, even though he's in prison, this church had sent him Epaphroditus to minister to him. They didn't want Paul alone, right? He's there, he's with Timothy. He had been allowed visitors. But, and so these, this church like this one would, would send him someone to minister to his needs and to take their gift and to, to serve him in any way he needs it because the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation even when you're in a situation where the world is trying to isolate you, right? And so we have no excuse. We, we should absolutely be living in Christian community. That's why we do small groups, for instance, at 9.30 here or on Wednesday nights and things like that is because we want to be able to break down into smaller groups so we can get to know one another better and live in community together and fellowship together because we are partners in the gospel. And fellowship or partnership, this koinonia done right, if it's done well, other believers should bring us joy and we should bring other believers joy. That's what it's meant to do. That's what's happening here with Philippi. But... We can't bring others joy if we gossip about them or slander them. We can't bring others joy if they're always grieving over our sin that we won't deal with. And others can't bring you joy when you focus on your disagreements instead of what you have in common in Christ. And others can't bring you joy if you isolate yourself from the Christian community and don't open yourself up to relationships. You'll miss out on the joy that God has for you, means for you through genuine gospel-centered community. So are you in partnership with the gospel here Are you doing all you can to press into that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership, for not only for God's glory, but for your own joy and for the joy of others? Are you doing that? And if you're truly invested in others, as Paul was here, because you're truly invested, you'll love them. You notice how much he loves this church? Look down at starting in verse 6. I want to talk to you about his... We're going to transition here and talk about the joyful confidence he had in their gospel transformation. He's so invested in them that you see he, he's, he realizes that they've been changed by the gospel, by Jesus, by believing in Jesus. And he is absolutely confident that, that God's going to finish what he has started in them. And he's just, he's just overflowing with joy and love for them. He's invested in their, in, their, in, in their walk with Christ. In verse 6 it says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Day of Jesus Christ. He says, right for me to feel this way about you all because I what? I hold you in my heart. For you are all, there's this partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. For God is my witness. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Just deep love here. And he's confident that what God's doing in them, God's going to finish. He says, because he's confident because salvation um, is ultimately not a work of man. It is a work of God. He says, I'm confident that he who began the work in you is going to complete it. He's confident that ultimately they're gonna, God is going to finish what he started in them because they didn't start it. God did. See, God starts and God finishes. Paul's confidence was not so much in them as it was in God. But he had confidence that God had actually begun a work in him, in them. And this was obvious because of their partnership in the gospel. They're being partakers of grace. They're standing by him even when he's in prison. See, why was Paul so confident that God had started the work in them in the first place? Because they're partakers of grace. They, they too had come under and seen their need for grace and their need for the gospel. And they had partook of God's grace by believing in Christ. But this is also a term Paul uses to express their partnership with him in in, um, in, in his ministry, even, even though he's in prison. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, it was a big deal to associate with someone who was a prisoner and consider them a spiritual leader and authority over you while they're in jail. 
I mean, that was just kind of, it was scandalous to many that Paul was in prison. Many people wouldn't have, wouldn't have anything to do with Paul since he was in prison. What did you do to get yourself locked up, right? There's, there's, there's a stigma even in our culture, right, with, with prison and being imprisoned. And there was in their culture as well. But Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 that he shouldn't be ashamed of Paul being in prison. Don't be ashamed of my chains, he says. But suffer with me. The Philippians were that kind of church. They weren't ashamed. They pressed in, right? And so they shown themselves to be partakers of grace and true partners in the gospel. And Paul looked at that and he said, that's the fruit of someone who's been transformed by the gospel. So God has begun a work in them that God's going to finish. You see... Salvation is not of you, it's of God. It's something that God does and God begins in your heart and something that God will finish, right? And He's not done working on you, right? If you're a believer in Christ, your eternity is secure, but you are nowhere near the finished product. Praise the Lord for that, right? Because we still mess up and do really dumb things sometimes. And we can be really selfish and we can be really sinful because we are not the finished product. God is still working on us, but He is sure, He says, that when you stand in front of Jesus one day as a believer, that you're going to be radically transformed and the construction project, the renovation project, is going to be completely finished on that day. And there will no longer be a need for you to repent of sin. And there will no longer be a need for you to... Um, to have to rid your life of things that displease Christ because on that day you're going to be completely transformed into the image that God has for you in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and all that sin and all that stuff is going to be no more. And so Paul's confident that God's going to finish what he started, but he's also confident that God started something because when God does start a work in you, it's tangibly evident. It's tangibly evident. And in this case, he points out not to necessarily moral behavior and all that kind of stuff, which it does manifest itself in that way. But here he's talking about just by the fact of their love and partnership in the gospel. Because before you come to know Christ, you care less about the gospel. You're not giving money usually, you know, unless it's just out of pure religion. Uh, to, to, you're not going to sacrificially give. You're not, you're not going to put your name and your life on the line, right? You're not going to put your reputation on the line. But for something that you don't really believe in. But when you believe the gospel, all of a sudden it becomes the priority in your life because Jesus is the supreme one in your life. And so you begin to organize your life around the gospel and about, and about representing Christ and, 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 and declaring His gospel. And see, if it was left to us, the salvation project in our lives would never be done. Right? We can't finish what we start. Go look in your garage. Think of all the things you've got. Some of you got golf clubs in there, right? Because you started a hobby that you didn't finish, right? Or you've got a, some other kind of hobby, you know, some hot glue gun somewhere because there was something you were getting into, right? Some scrapbook thing somewhere because you were getting into scrapbooking ten years ago, right? We've all got those things, right? Because we we're not always good on the follow through when it comes to some of these things. And so, if salvation was about you starting something and you finishing it, I can just tell you, you would go to hell. You would not finish. You wouldn't. But salvation is not about that. It's about God starting something in your life and God finishing something in your life. Now, it shows its evidence in your life, but it's a work of God. It's a miracle of God. And thank goodness for that because we wouldn't finish the job. We can't even start the job. But what God starts, He will finish and it will manifest itself in your life. Now, Paul loved this church. He says, I hold them in my heart. I hold them in my heart. And because he loved them, he was invested in their progress in the gospel. Look at verses 9 through 11. This is Paul's joyful prayer for them. I call this third thing, joy, his joyful prayer for their gospel progress. Because all this is rooted in their relationship with him and through the gospel. And this is his desire to see them 
progress in the faith, to spiritually grow. The New Testament word for that is sanctification, right? God had begun a work in them. And throughout Philippians, Paul comes back to this theme of sanctification, this idea of continued spiritual growth, working out what God has worked in you. And here in verses 9 through 11, Paul is off, he's telling us what he's praying. Remember he said, I pray with joy? Well, what do you so joyfully pray about, Paul? Look at what he says in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Right? And so this, this is the prayer he's offering up. He prays for their love to abound more and more. Because growth in love for God and others is at the very center of what it means to grow and mature as a Christian. Uh, growing as a Christian is not merely about learning Bible knowledge. Right? Uh, th- th- that's, that's good. That's healthy. It's also a great way to become arrogant. Right? And so it's also a great way to be filled with pride. And so spiritual growth is not primarily simply about learning a lot about the Bible. In fact, if you just learn a lot about the Bible for the sake of knowing a lot about the Bible and you don't apply what you've learned about the Bible, you're not going to love anybody. And you're not going to be very lovable. Some of the hardest, coldest people out there many times in the church know their Bible. There are atheists and agnostics that know their Bible, right? And so we want to know the Bible. We want to appropriate it in our life because the goal is about more than growth and knowledge. It is about growing and abounding in love. Because true spiritual growth always, every single time, will manifest itself in a deeper love for God, a deeper love for people. If it does not, it is not spiritual growth. Because what is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second one? To love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that, I mean that's, that's the big deal, right? I mean, that's what we're progressing towards, is to love people better, to, to love people more, to express that better, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's, the, that's what we're growing in. And so true spiritual growth will always manifest itself in that way. And so he says, you need knowledge. And he says, I want this with knowledge and all discernment. You need the wisdom and the knowledge and the discernment to know how to act on this. To act on our love for God and others so we can approve what is excellent or what is best. So in other words, you'll know how to do the will of God in every situation. To put to feet your love for God and others by knowing how to do the will of God in every situation. He wants them to be able to do God's will. And to make godly decision, decisions. Their love, in other words, needs wisdom and tangible expression in the lives of other people and in the lives of the church and in the world. Paul has the end in mind here. He says uh, he's longing for them to be presented pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He wants them to grow and mature increasingly until the day when they are completely transformed from the inside out. That word pure. Um, it can also be, some translations say sincere. Um, commentator Richard Mellick sa- suggests that this word stems from, the, the original word that it comes from uh, is two words that mean son and judge. And it's the idea of holding something up in the sunlight to judge it, right? So to be able to kind of see the blemishes, to be able to see the cracks, uh, to be able to see what's wrong with it. And he says, I want you to be able to stand that test, to be able to held up in the sunlight and to kind of look at you and be able to say, okay, this is, you're valid, you're real, you're pure, you're sincere, your devotion to Christ. He says, that's my goal for you, a, a real faith, a pure faith. In other words, not a hypocritical or phony or fake faith. And he uses the word blameless. The idea of, in the Greek, of not stumbling or causing others to stumble. 
He wants them to continue in the faith. And he doesn't want them stumbling into moral error. He doesn't want them leading other people astray. He doesn't want them uh, falling flat on their faith. He He says, I want you to continue to grow in purity and grow in blamelessness as you pursue Christ. Because I want you to stand in front of Jesus that way one day. And that day that you're going to be transformed when he's going to finish what he started. I want you ready for that day. And he says, I want you filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now that's an interesting term. Uh, This is the fruit of a life lived in accordance with God and His Word. He says, I want your life filled with the fruit of what it means to to live in the will of God, to live righteously. And he says, all this, how does this happen? How does this growth happen? How does the fruit of righteousness happen in your life? He says, it's only through Jesus. He says, through Jesus. Filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus. Because if it does not come through Jesus, it's not real. Because Jesus is the one who produces spiritual growth. Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do not some things, not a few things, nothing, right? And so any practical righteousness in your life comes to the work of Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. Righteousness comes from Jesus. You see that? Righteousness comes from Jesus. And so positionally, you and I, but when we're lost and in our sin, if you're not a Christian today, you stand in front of God condemned for your sin, for your sinful deeds before God. But because of what Jesus has done in coming and living a righteous life and then dying for our sins on the cross and bearing our judgment and the punishment that we deserve on the cross and rising from the dead, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, what happens is this. You get the righteousness of Christ and He's already taken your sin. And you are clothed through faith in Christ's righteousness. And so you have righteousness. You are righteous. You are righteous in Christ. That is your position. But then practically, because the Spirit of God now lives in you, practically that should begin to bear fruit in your life. The fruit of righteousness. And so the idea is this. Once your position in Christ has been changed, your practical living should change. And more so over the course of time as you begin to practically live out who you are in Christ. I've said this before. When you're not living like that, you're living in an identity crisis. You're not being who you are and who you're created and saved to be in Christ. And so he says, I want you filled with this fruit of righteousness. And he says, the aim of this, the point of this is the glory of God. He says, for the glory and the praise of God. Paul longed for God to be glorified and praised in this church. You know, more than anything, that's what he says. It all boils down to, he says, I love you. I'm joyous for you. I'm so thankful for this and that. But he says, at the end of the day, as I pray for you, And as I pray for your spiritual growth and for you to abound in love and to grow in wisdom and knowledge and to bear the fruit of righteousness, as I do all that, I'm doing it because I want you to bear this fruit through Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is a very God-centered prayer. This is hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. How Jesus taught us to pray. It's centered around the glory, the goodness of God. The fact that God deserves glory and God deserves praise. He says that's what's driving him. See, because when you pray for others, or when you pray for your church, when you pray for North Park, you should chiefly pray for God to be glorified. And a good way to know whether you're praying something or not that you should be praying is it bathed in and driven by a desire to see God glorified. Right? We can pray things that have nothing to do with God being glorified. We can pray things that have everything to do with getting what we want and doing what we want and having what we want. We, We can pray very selfishly, but 
the key to New Testament prayer, what God has called us to, is praying for God's will. And, and that's how we check off things as we're praying. And we kind of, over time, begin to realize, you know, God doesn't want me to pray for that anymore. Now He wants me to pray for this. As God begins to shape us and mold us as we desire to live our lives for His glory. And we want His glory in all things. So, the idea here is that when Jesus returns, that He wants Philippi uh, to be, have been consistently growing. Growing in their love for each other, growing in wisdom and knowledge, bearing this fruit, living this fruitful Christian life for the glory of God. He wants them to continue to progress in the gospel. They've been transformed by the gospel. It's given evidence. But he's saying, you're not done. You're not finished. This is, in a lot of ways, an exemplary church. I mean, some of the churches Paul writes, I mean, he has to kind of like push them, you know, slap them around a little bit to wake them up because they're doing crazy stuff, right? Like Corinthians, Galatians who are reverting back to old, you know, the law and all this kind of stuff. With Philippi, you don't see a lot of that. They had one big problem that he kind of addresses. And that is, they were, there was some murmuring and some complaining and some lack of getting along and lack of unity in the church. And he calls them out for it. And he says, and what he's calling for here is, is bathed in that because he says, what? I want you to grow and abound in love. He's getting them ready for the fact that he's about to, you know, rebuke them for their lack of fleshing that out and how they treat one another. We should pray for the spiritual progress of the body of Christ. You know, when you pray for your church family, and I hope you do, and when you pray for us, and when we pray for this church, don't just pray for numerical growth. Pray for spiritual growth. Pray for spiritual health. You know, a big body of spiritual babies is not the desire. Right? We want to be a diverse body. We want some spiritual babies. And we want some new people coming to faith. We want a lot of new people coming to faith in Christ. I'd love to just be outnumbered by that. But we also want wise and maturing believers. And we want people that are new in Christ and who are babes in Christ to grow up to be mature in Christ. So we should always be praying for the spiritual maturity and spiritual health of the body of believers because healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. And if you're not growing spiritually, it's because you're not spiritually healthy. You're lacking nutrients. Right? Just like a plant, you know, if I put a plant out on my back porch and we don't water it or it doesn't get enough sunlight or whatever, at some point it just begins to wilt and it'll ultimately die. Well, as a believer, you need water. You need the Word. You need community with other believers. You need, you need those things. You, you need this in your life. You need time with God through prayer. And you need this for spiritual growth. And when you're healthy, those things will produce growth in your life. And healthy churches will grow as they become more and more spiritually healthy. And we more and more line ourselves up with God's Word and God's idea of the New Testament church and getting on mission with Him and what He's called us to do. Healthy things grow. It's unnatural for something healthy to not grow. That's just, that's just true. Healthy things grow. Healthy things are alive. And so we pray for the spiritual, not just numerical, we want that. We pray for spiritual growth in our lives and in the life of this church. The Christian life is not a marathon, it's a sprint. Excuse me, not a sprint, it's a marathon. Got confused there for a second. Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. And sometimes we get all caught up with the here and now, and we, we miss the big picture. And at the end of the day, the Christian life, you are not going to achieve Christ's likeness tomorrow. I mean, you can. There's only one way. Um, uh, you, you, you can rid yourself of this uh, sinful flesh, um, but it's, it, 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 that means departing this earth, right? And so in this life, you are not going to achieve Christ's likeness until Christ returns. 
It's, it's just not going to happen. But we're supposed to continually strive for that. We're striving and pursuing something to get closer to that goal, even though it's something we know we can't reach until the life to come, until Christ returns. But until then, we're supposed to run the race and pursue it as a body of believers and as an individual believer with everything we've got. That's what he's praying for them here. And as believers, we need to understand that we're to do this together. We need this kind of connection to other believers that he's speaking of here. The kind of love for other believers in the church that circumstances can't kill. We need the kind of fellowship with others that even in isolation, we think on them with joy. That even when we're in difficult times, they're doing everything they can. Some, I think it was some 800 miles or something like that that, that separated Philippi and Rome. Doing everything we can to get whatever, to, to help people and to love people and to serve people. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time, and just because you've been a gospel partner, so to speak, for a long time, doesn't mean you're done, and doesn't mean you're arrived. Paul talks about that a little later on in this book. We have to continue to press forward. Paul here is in a very difficult spot, a lonely spot, and he writes a letter themed, a lot of it, with joy. Fourteen times. And a lot of that had to do with the belief he had this joy even in this circumstance because the churches like Philippi and people like Epaphroditus and Timothy that ministered to him and reached out to him even in these difficult and even in those difficult times. And just as they had loved on and 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 expressed this towards Paul, Paul wanted them to continue to do that with one another as the church body as well with those that were right there in their city. And that's what we're called to. That that even in lonely places and dark places, we can have joy because of the foundation of Christ and because of the people He puts around us in this journey. So here's a question for you this morning. Number one, are you connected to God and His people through Christ, through the gospel? Has there been a time in your life where you realize that the gospel is true, that you were a sinner in need of Christ, that you turned from your sin and embraced Christ and His death and His resurrection in your place and believed on Him for salvation? And when that happens, you get connected to God and you get a whole new family. You get connected to His people. Number two, as a believer this morning, are you pressing into fellowship with other believers? Are you partnering in the gospel? Do you spend time with other believers outside of this room for an hour or so? Are you in a small group? Are you financially supporting in some way ministries that advance the gospel? Are you pursuing gospel growth with other believers? Are, are you running this journey with others? Are you pursuing this with others? Are you doing it alone? You say, well, I, I do it with my, my family. Well, that's great. But your family needs other families, right? We're a family of families. You're, you need a family, right? And so you have a family, and families need a family. And this is a family for families. And so you need, or all local churches are. You, 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 we need one another. Are you, are you really plugged in? the gospel, fellowship, and community together. That's our questions this morning as we think about how to apply that.